Welcome back to A Better Night's Sleep, the podcast about sleep, sleep disorders, and evidence-based treatment by military health sleep experts. I'm Dr. Julie Kinn with the Defense Health Agency. And I'm Dr. Jonathan Olin, sleep physician and medical director of the Evans Army Community Hospital Sleep Lab. John, so far in this podcast series, we have approached a lot of very common sleep issues like insomnia, nightmares, other effects of trauma on sleep, caffeine, etc. But today we want to ask you about narcolepsy. This is a very uncommon disorder, but we've gotten a lot of questions about it. And frankly, I know very little about narcolepsy, and I'm really excited to learn more. Um, it is something that happens. It's relatively rare. It's serious, but rare. Some studies indicate every one to 3,000 people. Pretty rare condition, but can be pretty serious, or can be, in fact, quite serious. John, could you tell us a little bit more about what narcolepsy looks like in real life? I have an idea of it, but it's mostly from TV shows and movies. So tell us more about how these symptoms present. Uh, Earlier, in a previous podcast, we talked about alerting brain cells, that their job is to help brain stay alert, and sleep-inducing brain cells, and their jobs to help induce sleep. So with some people with narcolepsy, uh, or with people with narcolepsy, they have lost the ability to maintain wake. They're not Rip Van Winkle. They're not going to fall asleep for 40 years, or for a decade, or even for two weeks. Over 24 hours... Uh, many people with narcolepsy will still get about it, about eight hours of sleep over that 24-hour period, but they've lost their ability to maintain wake, and then they've lost their ability to consolidate sleep at night. So their alerting brain cells, in many cases, have somehow been damaged. And so, again, if I have you know bicep and a tricep, they oppose each other. My bicep helps me flex my elbow. My tricep uh, causes me to extend my elbow. If my bicep is damaged, I just extend my elbow. I'm going to struggle to contract or flex my elbow. So if people have lost ability or much function of the alerting compound or one key alerting compound that has two names, but it's one compound, orexin Mm -hmm. or hypocretin, two labs found it, at around the same time, so one gave one name, one gave the other. (laughs) But if people have lost that ability to make that compound, then they're going to not be able to maintain wake, and so they'll abruptly have sleep, what are people described as sleep attacks, and they'll have other phenomenon of REM, rapid eye movement sleep. So it's purely biological. It's Yes, so it's a brain disorder with stress can make it worse, and there can be other ongoing other factors that could make it worse. Obviously, someone with narcolepsy who's sleep-deprived is going to be profoundly unable to maintain wake. I think in general it used to be experimental, but at Stanford you could do what's called a lumbar puncture or a spinal tap, sometimes it's referred Mm -hmm. to, and -hmm. actually uh, withdraw spinal fluid, the fluid that's around the spinal cord in the brain, and send it off to a lab in Stanford, and they could look for orexin hypocretin. There are some people with narcolepsy that have normal levels, but many people, especially people with uh, conditional, which I'll talk about in a in a minute, called cataplexy, which 
I'll mention now is muscle weakness with strong emotion. So someone tells a joke mm. and or they get angry and they may then abruptly have muscle weakness. So uh, people with cataplexy were very prone to, if they had an L lumbar puncture, to then have very low levels of the orexin hypocretin, the, the, the alerting compound. Serious, if people then can't maintain wake, yes, it's right. rare, but serious condition. At what age does it usually appear? Um, often in teens and early adulthood, Okay. sometimes following a trauma, sometimes months after following an infection where there's a component of autoimmune where the body gets a little confused and may attack a portion of uh, the brain that's making this critical uh, alerting compound. Often in... Um, uh, early adulthood, but there are instances where it's diagnosed in 50s or, or 60s. People may go years prior to diagnosis formally where they'll say, yeah, I was always known as a sleepy person in high school. Uh, people would make fun of it because uh, it's uncommon, and so right. it wasn't you know readily diagnosed. It's pretty striking how some of those predictors really do apply to our young service members. Right, exactly. They're their age. So if people are getting adequate sleep, so that's a big key because what's way more common in our current society is people are falling asleep during the day because they don't get adequate sleep at night, whether it's they haven't prioritized it, whether it's they're having nightmares, whether uh, they have a newborn child, you know, and they're young for whatever reason. But if people are having, at, having adequate opportunity to sleep at night, sleeping reasonably well for you know, not one day or not one week. We don't do testing, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, for someone who just got off CQ or just had a newborn child. But if people mm -hmm. are having adequate opportunity to sleep, sleeping reasonably well at night, and still falling asleep throughout the day, then that's obviously of concern. Some people refer to it as a tetrad. Uh, so there are four components. People don't need all four for the diagnosis, but the sleep attacks, it's one. Cataplexy. If people are having, quote, true cataplexy with actual muscle weakness with strong emotions, mm -hmm. that's highly suggestive of, you know, very, very concerning. And um, they should, in my opinion, see, then, especially if they're having sleep attacks, go see a sleep specialist or go see a neurologist. Muscle weakness with strong emotions, early uh, morning wakening, dreaming. So when they're drifting off to sleep, being aware of dreaming or waking up in the early morning, being aware of dreaming. That's not necessarily highly diagnostic. For example, I have that and many people have that. So a lot of people report as they drift off to sleep. But if someone said, wow, I now have abrupt, very vivid dreams just as I'm drifting off to sleep and it occurred around the same time that I started having these sleep attacks, obviously that's concerning. And then sleep paralysis, which is terrifying for people. It's obviously been, it's been going on for centuries, millennium, but that's where people wake up, they're conscious, but they can't move. Oh, yeah, that's terrifying. And many of these, this tetrad is associated with REM sleep. So I'll digress, but in REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, you're dreaming, as we discussed. Uh, you're actually paralyzed, and we even know the, the neurochemical that's involved with the paralysis and on the spinal cord. And so people are paralyzed. Their eyes aren't paralyzed because in a sleep lab, you can see them moving their eyes back and forth. And their diaphragm isn't paralyzed. They're breathing. Their heart's not paralyzed. Mm -hmm. But the rest of their skeletal muscles are paralyzed. 
So if then someone wakes during that state, regains consciousness, but still has ongoing spinal cord paralysis, that's sleep paralysis. Again, we look at factors that are fragmenting sleep. If someone's having dreams and waking up then they, and having sleep paralysis, try to treat that. But if someone's re reporting that and ongoing sleep attacks, that's, again, concerning and suggestive of narcolepsy. So when someone comes in to see you, you begin with those four things. But are there any specific tests that you can do in the lab? Um, if someone comes in and reports sleep attacks, first thing I do is look at common things. So the most common thing is person's not getting adequate amount of sleep. Mm -hmm. So we sorry, um encourage I take a history about that, encourage them to really prioritize sleep. If they tell me that they they're sleeping relatively well at night, giving themselves eight ish hours to sleep and I still want to proceed with testing, I'll order three things. So the first is a general order two week actigraphy. It used to be, I'm sure, a decade or two two decades ago would be kind of techy and uncommon, but it's a wristwatch-like device that measures motion, acceleration, and uh, measures light. So you look at a, sl a person's sleep-wake cycle over a couple weeks, again, trying to uh, review that they're getting adequate sleep at night. In other words, we don't want to do it after someone's been on some night duty for the last two weeks and then see how quickly right. they fall asleep during the day. Then we'll review, a, have them do a sleep, an in-lab attended sleep study for that night, looking to see how well they sleep, how much they sleep, and if they have another sleep disorder that could be causing the daytime sleepiness, for example, obstructive sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. If someone has moderate or severe obstructive sleep apnea, or for that matter, even mild, I'll probably not do the the test the following test. So then right. that that could be a reason we don't need two diagnoses. That could be meaning they may not have narcolepsy. They may have moderate or severe obstructive sleep apnea that's fragmenting their sleep and causing them to then fall asleep during the day. They have the uh, in lab night study, and then we'll keep them over in lab for the next day, and we'll have them take repeated naps. Uh, some labs oh. do four or five naps, and we give every two hours and give them the opportunity to fall asleep and see if they get in a stage of sleep called REM, rapid eye movement. So someone with narcolepsy is going to fall asleep very quickly during these naps and go into REM, rapid eye movement sleep. They may, the, over the night test, the one the night preceding the nap test, they may fall asleep quickly and go into REM quickly during that study period too. So again, you're gonna have multiple, uh, what are called sleep latencies. Uh, so you're looking at how, after the lights are turned off, how quickly it, it is, how quickly they can go to sleep and how quickly they can get into a stage of sleep called REM, rapid eye movement. So if they're falling asleep quickly and getting to REM, mm -hmm. after having the opportunity to sleep for the preceding couple weeks with reasonable sleep and sleep opportunity, then that's consistent with a diagnosis of uh, narcolepsy. That makes sense. So what is the treatment? Give us some good news here. Treatment in general is going to focus on getting consistent and regular sleep, including at night, prescribed daytime napping. So hmm. people are going to, in an organized way, do something to take a nap, one or two, two, uh, quote, power naps, 15, 20-minute naps, so maybe during lunchtime, maybe at 11 o'clock, maybe at 3 o'clock, go out to their car or uh, find a quiet area at their, at their work 
and then um, go ahead and, and nap. Again, relatively brief, 20-ish minutes. If person's taking a two-hour nap, that's too long. That's gonna, they're going to wake up groggy, and they're going to then have trouble getting to sleep that night. And then an alerting medication, often something called Provigil or Modafinil has started, but there are other medications that can be used that are alerting. And those are the major kind of starting points for treatment. If someone's having cataplexy, we'll often start with, this would be off-label, label, but start with an antidepressant medication that can be very useful in treating the cataplexy. There are other treatments for cataplexy. If a person's refractory or still having cataplexy, they should, in my opinion, definitely review that with their uh, prescriber, with their clinician, because there can be other treatments too. So what I'm hearing is that even though narcolepsy is rare, it's important for us in the military community to be aware of it, first of all, because of a slightly higher incidence in folks who have experienced trauma and also young adults. But I'm also hearing that some of these symptoms can also be signs of other sleep issues. So although it's serious, we should rule out other potential conditions first, especially the ones that are much more likely. Yeah, exactly. So it's not common. It's relatively uncommon, but it is serious. So therefore, it merits um, investigation and thinking about. But yeah, the most common thing for people that are sleepy during the day in uh, many patient populations is they're not getting adequate sleep, not having, not maybe in some cases, not prioritizing adequate sleep. Thank you so much for joining us today on the A Better Night's Sleep podcast. Thank you for subscribing on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts and leaving us ratings or sending feedback to us at Military Health on Facebook and Twitter. Please let us know what other topics you'd like or if you have questions for John and our other military health system sleep experts. A Better Night's Sleep podcast is produced by the Defense Health Agency.